Welcome, welcome to Conversations with Tita and Tiffany and Joel. And we're super excited to have Joel on today. And he's going to be talking about his white work, his white man work, which I love because white men are getting a lot of bad rap lately, right? Like, so this is this is really good. And he's also the husband of a previous guest that we've had, Lavon, um, who I just saying before that we want to get back on. So he's um, from Seattle. He knows Tita. They got connected, and then I started to ask questions, and we're like, like we normally do. Let's just let's just wait. So Tita, do you want to fill us in a little bit more, and then we hand it over to to Joel to get started? Sure. I mean, Joel is like a soul <laughs> brother. Um, he yes, he married my I call her my adopted sister, Levon Dor Levon Dorsey, and. Um, that's how I got connected with Joel. And I think with Joel, Mary, Levon, I, he's been immersed in the black culture, the black race, especially because Levon's family is, you know, very connected and she, you know, has a lot of um, friends and so forth. So I think Joel was probably just thrown in there, right, Joel? Yes, yes, thrown in the mix. She says jump, I say how high. That's, you know, how, we, should, we, should, we should make it clear that Levon, for those of you who don't know, oh, is she's black. Black. She's so, black. Yes. Yeah, that, black. Yeah, she's that's black. an important piece there. So and Joel's white. <laughs> yes, a white so, man. So Joel, yeah. how did you get into your anti-oppression work and your DEI work that you're you're doing now? Was it through your wife? Were you already doing it previously? Tell us the story. Yeah, it, it was uh, through my wife. I mean, I, when we first got together, it's the, you know, this is 10 years ago, we, we first moved in together. And uh, I started noticing things that Levon had to put up with all of her life and every day and things that I was, you know, painfully unaware of, and kind of had shame about that I was painfully unaware of. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, then I saw and had some incidents and, and still do about people saying pretty nasty stuff about seeing us together. You know, and I and I wanted to do more. And and Levon started, you know, Levon's been doing the DEI work for a long time, and everything after George George Floyd went, uh, you know, crazy with the DEI work, and and yeah. and rightfully so. And so I started doing that work with her, and and uh, then she she came up to me uh, once and said, you know, I'm working with a lot of white leaders, men and women, who are are uh, not going, you know, some are are great and are and are doing the work with me and. And some just won't listen to a brown girl. And, and I need you to develop a curriculum around working with white leaders. So, and, and hopefully you'll have, you know, some more better luck than I have with some of these folks. So that's how it all, all started. Wow, that's so powerful. That's, I love that. She's a powerhouse. So if you haven't watched that episode, go and just find her in our, in our library there. And so what has been like some of the, what do you feel like some of the challenges are in really educating white folks around anti-oppression and DEI work? Like where are the real sticking points? Well, you know, it, it's interesting. I had, um, you know, I do, I have a, I work with taking their organizations from anti-racist to multicultural and them as individuals, but I actually had to change some of the, uh, the words from like anti-racist 
to anti-oppression because they have, you know, there's such a, there's such guilt and shame there that if someone thinks you're calling them a racist in, in this world today, it's, uh, you don't get anybody anywhere with anybody. So it's, what's really, really, you know, uh, important to get across is that a person doesn't have to be a racist or indulgent racist if she is consciously white, it's okay. And you have to get a, and if you really want people to, you know, make changes, then they have to feel good about who they are, mm. right? Because there's there's kind of two categories of white people in, the, in this particular instances, and th those are the ones that want to protect their privilege, and then the, you know, and 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 ones that want to take pride in their cultural background, mm. but they're super aware of the serious problem of racism, and and that it's our responsibility as white people to dismantle racism. So you know, helping them develop this positive ra uh, racial identity where they can see themselves as racial. Uh, beings and then acknowledge structural racism and white privilege and learn to accept racism as a healthy aspect of themselves and others. So that's that's what the first thing we have to do is get them to feel good about who they are if they want to make, uh, you know, if they want to make the changes. Gosh, that's, yeah, that's gold yeah. right there. That's so good. What were we going to say, Tita? So, yeah, because you're talking about the identity, right? Um, they have to develop identity about themselves to feel good so that they can help dismantle racism. So I was looking at your lovely site here, full of information. And it's saying that having a positive white identity leads to the acceptance that white people must take responsibility for any racism. Um, what does that, what does that look like? Like, cause Tiffany and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, remember? the media, it never mm -hmm. talks about like really the white community or it brings up white challenges or issues, but it lots, the media brings up a lot of people of color, you know, neighborhood stuff or challenges or issues, but you never really hear about the white identity. So what is that? Like, I think, I think some white people don't even think like they have an identity, which is we are saying as part of the challenge is if you don't feel like you have an identity, then how can you move forward and connect and, um, you know, try to dismantle racism? So what is that like white identity? Like, how do you how do you deliver that? <laughs> well, you know, before I get to the white identity, I, I, I go into giving them giving some history. And, you know, because one of the things that, you know, my master's work was in history and I and I found out I've just lied to my whole education and, you know, and I really was upset with that. And and I so I give them some history, some background to, you know, uh, when, you know, when the early early colonial days, you know, slavery was going on way before the colonial days, you know, in 12th century England and 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 before the first slaves came across. And, you know, in 1619, in England, there was slaves, there was actually a law in England called the 1547 Slave Law, where if, if you were out of work for three days, you were considered a vagrant and a, and a person of means could make you their slave a white person enslaving another white person in England, mm. you know, and that lasted for a few years where they, then they, they had a hard time with Christians having Christian slaves and so forth. But then, you know, then, uh, you know, then I, I teach them about coming to America and, and both, there were both, you know, three out of four people coming to America were either debtors or convicts or indentured servants, black and white. They weren't quite slaves, but they weren't free. Right. And, and then, 
things started, you know, they, they started deteriorating for, for blacks more than the whites, but both black and whites together and, uh, you know, we're, we're in the same problem fighting for better, better social, uh, you know, better social, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, you know, circumstances for their lives. And in, and this is like a history lesson, I'm sorry, but in 1776, so yeah. in 1776, there was this landowner named Nathaniel Bacon, and he had a mixed group of bonded servants and slaves, white and black. And he was really worried about the indigenous people, the Indian attacks, if you will, on, on his white and black servants and everything. And to alert the government, he alerted the government they wouldn't listen. So his bonded servant says, we'll help you if you allow us to, to fight for more rights. So he did, and he, and a he led a group of 500 black and white bonded servants to attack the capital of Jamestown, Virginia, and they burned it to the ground. And that changed everything. And that's when black became synonymous with being a slave. Fear went into overdrive and, and the wealthy landowners re recognized the threat to this capitalist regime that they had. And, and they were dependent upon the work of, of these hereditary, lifetime hereditary slaves. So they needed some new birthright for all Euro European Americans, both free and in bond. There would be an identity that set them apart from people of African descent. So that's when the word white came up. There was no white before that. Before wow. that, they, they were either Englishmen or they were Christians. But then white came up and white went into all the laws. And so I teach them that history, you know, a little bit of that history first, you know, in more detail. And then we go into the, the white identity part. And yes, it is uh, our, our responsibility as white people to end racism and, and without asking people of color how to do it, because uh, we started it and we're continuing, you know, the whole thing right now, it's still going on, obviously. And, uh, you know, and to assume their responsibility, White people, they, they have to become aware of how racism, unfortunately, this is how it works, but they have to become aware how racism hurts white people and how ending it serves the interest of all people, all white people as well. And that, you know, when you combine that awareness with, you know, enhanced abilities through education to recognize the many faces of racism and, and discovery of options to replace it, then the real work starts. So, that was pretty long-winded. No, that <laughs> was great. excellent, excellent. So I want you to give examples because white people, I know there's white people who don't assume that racism hurts them in mm -hmm. the long run. Long run, uh, what am I? Long haul, right? Long, long haul. haul. <laughs> so um, can you provide some of those examples, like how it sure. is hurting them? Sure, and I'll also, uh, you know, one of the, uh, uh, I've, probably read 50 books in the last six months. And The Some of Us by Heather McGee was one of the most important books I've read. Talks about zero-sum thinking. You see, white people and, and a lot of people, most people, have this, there's this, the way you look at life is, you know, through scarcity or abundance. You know, some people see life as this finite pie that if one person takes a big piece, that leaves less for everyone else. Well, a lot of white people are afraid to give people of color anything because they feel like it's going to be taking something from them. You know, it's, and, and, but it's actually a zero thumb, some deal we, we lose. At the beginning with, of, of the colonial slavery, there was a zero sum relationship. You had cheap land and slaves cost a lot, but you had a lifetime of labor for free and they were profitable. And, and you know, and, and 
because of that, let's, for instance, in, in the 1850s, just prior to the Civil War, if you looked at what the colonies looked like then, or the United, the United States then looked like, you can tell the difference between the South and the North. Pennsylvania had 395 libraries in those days. South Carolina, 26. Maine, 236. Georgia, 38. New Hampshire yeah. had over 2,500 public schools. Mississippi had 700. You know, nine out of the 10 poorest states are still in the South. And seven out of the 10 with the least educated are still in the South. And then you can shoot ahead to the, 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 new, the 1900s and uh, the, 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 in the 1920s and 30s, for instance, uh, they started building, cities started building huge swimming pools. This is in Heather McGee's book. So started building huge swimming pools, pools that were big enough to hold five to 10,000 mm -hmm. people, right? And all this money would come into the cities because they'd have a pool. And every, in the summer, they'd come in and they were only, whites only. Mm -hmm. And they wouldn't even have a day for, for people of color by, by, you know, we'd say, go ahead and drain the pool. And then, you know, no, they wouldn't even do that. So, you know, what happened was then they built a ton of those more in the 30s with the WPA and, 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 and uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's program. There were over 2,000 of these pools by World War II, bringing in tons of money. To Birmingham, Alabama had 11 of these pools that was pretty much funding Birmingham. But then the 50s ended, came and segregation ended, and they had to segregate. So Birmingham, Alabama filled in all their pools with concrete and closed the parks and all their towns went down all the all the money disappeared. Their towns dried up. So, you know, they hurt themselves to make to make sure that nobody else would you know, of color would get something that's zero sum thinking. And, you know, that's a wow. that's a pretty good example of it. And <laughs> also probably. Yeah, it is a great example. And it's probably to a certain degree of examples of like the HBCUs, right? Like. The reason why mm. HBCUs were established is because they wouldn't let um, blacks into their the white institutions. And now some there are some HBCUs who have some great programs, resources, and doing some great things. But could you imagine if we were able to have everybody together, studying together, and what we could really be making together? But that's also how they hurt themselves, right? To to not allow. Um, Blacks to participate in some of their activities and institutions. And then, and now they want to say reverse racism. So I'm curious to hear your perspective on that. Reverse racism when Blacks do initiate something or establish something that is mainly to benefit, you know, the Blacks, but it all derives because of systems and other things that have been in place that's been oppressive. So I'm curious on what you're, if that's even a real thing, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, it, you know, racism. I mean, you know, race is a social construct. White, I just showed you, is a, it's a social construct. It's not really a real thing. Right. Caucasian right. doesn't white. The Caucasians people are the Caucasus mount, mountains are people of color. So I don't know where that even came from. But <laughs> right. uh, yeah, I, as far as reverse racism goes, I just don't. You know, I don't. It, it doesn't ex exist to me. You know, there's there, there's no such thing. I think all that stuff comes out of fear, mm -hmm. right? And I think what, you know, what we're dealing with today with, you know, racism, uh, you know, in full gear, uh, you know, with, with what happened with the last presidency and everything and, and how racism has kind of been in, emboldened and so forth. That, you know, that, that stuff is all about the fact that, in, you know, 2045 or 2042 maybe even that the whites will become a minority and and that's the fear of it you know so i think 
they're manufacturing stuff. It's, you know, that's like, that's like being in junior high and somebody calls you a name and you say, you are, but what am I? Right. You know, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I don't know what to do with it. Right. <laughs> that's true. Wow. Yeah. It's just so much. Yeah. That's like, it's like very good history lesson here. And when you were talking about how the British came over and colonized, um, America, there's similarities in Australia as well. So Christopher Columbus discovered Australia and then he came over and um, it's it's a well-known kind of running joke in Australia that they literally filled ships full of convicts, people that they couldn't house in the, in uh, not in the US, in England anymore, put all the convicts on the ships and shipped them out to Australia and colonize the, the land here. And um, as best as they could, wiped out out our indigenous people as well. So it's so interesting to see the way the the British and the Spanish and the French and I don't know like a good context of history, but um, the European like a lot of European cultures colonized a lot of Africa, Australia, USA, and I think it's so interesting that there's this common denominator across countries that really is built on a system that only helps or supports one race. And like you said, it just comes down to fear. You know, it's 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 just to, to this day, like Tita and I talk about all the time, like how much has it really changed? And when is it when's the tipping point of change really going to happen? And I just love hearing, you know, people that are going out and educating and doing the DI work, DEI work and the anti-oppression work or anti-racist work, especially white men, because a lot of white men are getting a real, I mean, I'm guilty of it, are getting a really hard rap right now. And I think there's something that you said that really touched me where I have white guilt. I still do. And white shame. Like I still am challenged with that. So I love that you educate white people on identifying what their culture is because I don't really feel like I have a strong culture I don't know if it's because I'm a white Australian and I've traveled a lot of the world but how do you feel the effects of white shame or white guilt either in yourself that you've experienced or from other people and I think particularly men because they are getting a, a bad rap right now and how that affects the division of black white which doesn't even really exist like you said you know you know for myself um it's kind of a a a mixed bag i i'm jewish and i grew up on the lap of holocaust survivors so i'll you know i grew up looking at tattoos on people's arms and hearing all these horrific stories and part of the reason we and this is not an excuse, but part of the reason we didn't talk about what was going on around the cult, people of color communities, and, the, and and I grew up in Los Angeles, so the Hispanic communities and so forth, was it was all about never forget. That's the thing about the Holocaust: never forget, never forget, never forget, and so forth. But but when it comes to my my shame, which I can't say that I've gotten rid of it, but I'm I'm rising above it because it's not doesn't have a lot of value for me to just hold on to it so much. But my shame was let is is. It's kind of a more, it's less about color and more about 
my personal shame and how unaware I was growing up and how things were going on around me. And I, I could have told you who were the coolest rock bands in the sixties when I grow up grew up and, you know, and in the seventies, but I, but I, I didn't make myself aware of everything. So that, you know, I, I, I'm upset about that with myself and I deal with that. So I think that, you know, so there's a whole personal level and again, with, with, with people, uh, when I start working with people to do this and they start, you know, they start coming up, we talk about like reparations. Well, I, I can't, mm-hmm. I can't do, I can't have anything to do with that. They, I mean, I wasn't even around then. Well, there's, it's still going on now. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, so, right, you exactly. Know, right. You know, but, but again, <laughs> educating them, you know, you talked about colonization when I talked to, you know, Abraham Lincoln learned from Australia. Abraham Lincoln won, uh, uh, signed the Emancipation Proclamation to end oh, the Civil yeah. War, not to free the slaves. Right. And and by the time he was killed, he had come around and he was very, very much about equality. But before that, he wanted the slaves to be freed and then colonized to South America and sent to South America and sent out of the country, you know? So when you learn about your heroes, you know, I read a letter from Thomas Jefferson talking to a neighbor referring about the economy of slavery with advice to his neighbor. And I remember the quote, the appreciation of slaves as a silent profit between five and 10% annually is advised, invest accordingly. That was from Thomas Jefferson who wrote, you know, all men are created equal. So I think when people start seeing the way we were socially conditioned and we've been conditioned, you know, I read a thing about where, you know, a little kid, little white kid sees the first time they see a, a, a black child. What, what's that mommy? Is that, is that person dirty or are they, you know, no, God left them in the oven a little too long. Oh my God. That but, is you know, to me. You know, oh, right. yes. I've never heard that. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. You know, Sorry. so, so already I, yeah. you're putting them on a negative, you know, mm-hmm. because, because, you know, when I told you the thing about bacon and, and, and creating white, you know, when the Civil War started in 1860, there were 4 million slaves in the South, but there were 5 million poor white people, right? And, and they didn't, and only 1% were the slave owners who had all that money. And those, mm. those, those, those poor white people needed to have a leg up on those, mm. on those people of color. And that's the only way you can do that and so mm-hmm. forth. So yeah, you, get, you got to educate them to that and say, well, when they say, hey, uh, you know, it's not going on right now. I say, yeah, it's not only going on right now, but the same, you know, in, in the 1800s, owners could purchase, purchase life insurance on their slaves from New York Life and Aetna and U.S. Life to get paid three quarters of their market value upon the slave, slave's death. Well, New York Life and, and Aetna are still out there selling yes. insurance policies. We're still supporting them. You know, so mm. getting people to, yeah. to understand how it's it's never ended. And and if I may, when, when you mentioned Tiffany, uh, you know, you know, you've got to do something about this. I know it's not going to end in my lifetime, no. you know, I and and but I, I think I mentioned this to you, Tito. We had a story. I feel like I, I have this thing in my head where I where I picture a hummingbird. My 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 future son-in-law, uh, my daughter's getting married this weekend. My my future son-in-law said to me the um, that that story about a forest fire, and all the animals were running out of the forest. 
But there was this hummingbird that kept trying to fly into the burning forest and back and back in and, and did it like 10 times. And the animals were like, what's going on? And one of the animals said, hey, what are you doing? And the hummingbird said, well, I, I fill up my I go to the river and I fill up my beak with water and I'm putting out the fire. You know, so that's what we have to think, uh, you know, not, you know, as white people who it's our responsibility. And I know it's not going to end in my lifetime, mm -hmm. but I have to continually be that hummingbird. And we just need to get more and more people going to the river and filling up their beaks and, and putting out the fire because we started it. That's you, yeah. Tiffany. <laughs> that's me, the hummingbird. <laughs> what type of bird am I, Joel? <laughs> she can. Wow, this is, and that's the thing is we all been, you know, my favorite word, Tiffany, bamboozled, right? Mm. <laughs> Regarding our history. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm curious though, Joel, because like you said, we're in it. It's I don't think racism is going <laughs> to, um, be dismantled during my lifetime either. What has been the transformation with your clients? Like what, what has those transformation look like for these white men? Like, I, I'm just really curious because I, I haven't, yeah. you know what I mean? Cause I, I don't know. Cause I, I haven't seen it. You don't really. come across a lot. Yes. Of yes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm trying to like be a little diplomatic. <laughs> I maybe well, know one or two. I think you might be the third person I know. Well, you know, it's it, it, the, 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 the project that uh, the, this project, the Inclusive Leader Project, it's, you know, uh, uh, probably uh, at least a six month uh, deal. And we spend about 10 hours of workshops. So two, two hour, three hour workshops. Before we even get to the history part, which I told you, and before we even start talking about racism, <clears throat> we, we look at a new way of having conversation and a new way of, uh, of learning. Because people really, well, first of all, people talk, uh, they have, they have um, discussions, right? And discussions are about, you know, what a discussions uh, means to, Concussion, like percussion, concussion means break things up. <clears throat> Excuse me. It, it means to analyze ideas with different points of view, like a ping pong game back and forth and batting ideas back and forth to win a point, right? A discussion is like an expedition. You go out in this goal, uh, on this, look at this goal on a map and know what you're looking for and you're focused on something. And, and you know, we want to either win or lose our discussion where dialogue is more like this exploration where people go into the unknown to see what comes to them with no expectations and dialogue for, you know, it's about realizing what's on each other's mind without coming to any conclusions or judgments. And, you know, we have to get, we, we have to sort of weigh the question a little bit, ponder it a little bit and always seek to understand instead of being understood. You know, that's that, you know, so we, we do a lot of exercises around that and we talk about how, you know, and we, then we, we talk about subjective and objective mind. How do you mm. know how, right. Are, it, it, we we got to figure out when, when something's coming from our assumptions and our stories and our opinions and, and our emotions are tied to it versus can you get outside of that? And just, can we look at maybe that there's an answer that'll be good for both of us, a win-win. So how do you look at things? There's this thing called, uh, there's a great uh, book called uh, Shift by the Heat Brothers. I could, I could send you guys a book list that you could put up too. It, it's a wonderful great, yes. list. 
and and it talks about uh, it, it talks about the the elephant and the rider, and it talks mm-hmm. about how our el- the elephant this twenty thousand pound beast that's our emotions, and the hundred and twenty pound mm-hmm. rider is our rational thought, mm-hmm. and the emotions usually win, and and there's all kinds of studies how we as humans you know we're we're eighty percent of people make decisions based on what they think they know, versus listening and seeking to understand and getting a new you know, new information to bring in there. And it's so, this, this book tells about a story that tells you how, tell, speaks to we as humans about this guy from MIT who, who created an alarm clock called the Glocky and it has wheels on it and you put it on your, on your desk and, and on your nightstand. And in the morning, when the alarm goes off at 5 a.m. And, and part of you, the, the rider on top, says i'm gonna get up and i'm gonna take a run before work and have a nice breakfast but the elephant says it's really warm in the sheets and this little cocoon we're gonna stay there so the glocky goes off and has wheels that jumps off the the uh, uh nightstand and runs around the room and you have to get out of your bed to turn it off or you yeah. it'll never go off right <laughs> and that's that shows you how how much humans have problems around you know <laughs> So we do a lot of stuff around, you know, how do we teach, we do things about building habits, how to learn to pause when you're about to say something. Why am I mm. saying this? Where did it come from? Mm. Is this, is this, is there value in saying this for me and for them? Mm. You know, so we do stuff and, you know, so we do a lot of stuff around that. We do a lot of stuff around setting ground rules. You know, um, we, mm. everybody wants a safe space, but you know what? Uh, safety is is, uh, is insisting on safety is an ex- expectation of privilege, right? You know, because safety is protecting you from risk and harm and requiring safety speaks to how power and privilege have moved within your life. So we talk about what a brave space is, That's you know? Right. Wow. And, ah, I never even thought you know, about that. That's a good point. Right. So we go through all these things, you know, say, so what, what else should we, well, sometimes you just agree to disagree. Again, that's privilege, you know, opting out of a conversation <laughs> is, is privilege. You know, I, I tell this story and I think for your audience is a good one story about, mm-hmm. about that. It's like, you know, if you're, if you're in a workshop about sexism and you're, there's this discussion how it has an impact on leadership and employment opportunities for women in the U.S. Well, well, many of the women and some of the men share these statistics that women are underrepresented in positions of leadership. They're paid less than men for the same work. And most of the men in the room contest that point of view, you know, and they give examples. Well, what about Sheryl Sandberg? And look, at we have a woman vice president. So they go back and forth and back and forth. And then one of the men says, uh, you know what, let's just agree to disagree. The conversation stops. And that results in systems of sexism continuing to confer unearned privileges to the men while restricting freedom and opportunity to the women. And that's really harmful for all involved, but especially for the women. So, you know, we, we, we go through those things teach them about things like intentions and impact and the, the golden rule and the platinum rule and stuff like that. Wow. Wow. So good. That's I'm before like, we sign, even work sign on the me hard up. stuff. I know. I, wanna, I just want to be, I just want to be a fly on the wall. I want to just see how it from beginning to end, just like, I'm just always curious about how, when people are able to like, ah, oh, get it, you know, and then really start to transform. So, oh, wow. So then, oh my God, there's so much. I could have like part two, part three, because my question is then, well then, 
are you are we getting the right people into your project so like are these white men who want to you know see understand more about racism understand more about their privilege and how they can actually um navigate the world in a more you know equitable space or be or more equal you know just not right. be so privileged i guess you know and not not and not be not be operate in a conditional oppression, I guess, right? Because a lot of them are conditioned to oppress, right? To not right. operate of being um, oppressed conditionally. How, so how are they coming to you? Like, right. Is it, well, yeah, it, it's, you know, that's interesting. well, first of all, it's not just white men, it's white women. It's, I, I work with white mm. leaders, right? Oh, okay. And right. So it's bo both men and women. And yeah, you know, I, I'm at a point in my career that I don't have the energy, I'm only one hummingbird, and I, and I don't have the energy to tell, to try to convince people that that racism is a, is a horrible thing and try to, con you know, I said there are two types right. of people, one that want to protect mm -hmm. their privileges and the others that want to feel good about themselves and do something about racism. Mm -hmm, yeah. I, I go for them uh, and not ones that want to protect their privilege. Uh, and right. and uh, I kind of, it's, you know, these are folks who want to do something about it. Most of them want to do something about it and, and they don't know how. So that's mm -hmm. where I come in. Some, you know, I'm a coach, an executive coach, a leadership uh, development coach. And, and if someone's been mandated coaching and they have to take it, they're, they're, they're not often very successful. I'm not often very successful with them. If they want coaching, I'm, I'm pretty successful with them. You know, so I, we do that. We talk about a lot. You know, I, I mentioned earlier how, how uh, racism hurts all of us. We, you know, I talk about, you mentioned, you know, oppression. And, and we talk about how oppression dehumanizes everyone. Yeah, yes, we think of oppression, it's totally dehumanizing for people of color when it comes to comments, jokes, having your needs ignored, being disrespected, treated like less than an object. That, that's, that's horrible stuff that they are somewhat aware of, but it's also dehumanizing and, and manipulated by our conditioning to, to white people to have our perception be rigidly restricted when it comes to reality outside of our lived lived experience that conditioning you know to be prevent to be prevented from being moved by human suffering and be made immune to someone else's voice social conditioning limited our all of our ability as as white people to be fully human it limits our emotional range reduces the depth of our empathy and it keeps us from you know speaking listening loving and living really fully so when people start to get that and, you know, and they and they start to get the history part that it's all about the money, you know, that in mm -hmm. 1860, uh, those four million slaves were worth three point eight billion dollars, which is one hundred billion in today's money, more than all the banks, railroads and factories combined. When they start getting these numbers in this mm -hmm. data and combine that with the fact that it hurts everyone, you know, and we go through how we learn how redlining hurts everyone, how everything that's being done to people of color also hurts, you know, not ne not nearly as much, but it definitely right. hurts everybody. You know, I just want to make one one other point though too. Please, please, please do. Just Keep like, going. I thought it wasn't angry anymore. No, but but the thing, the other the other thing that I that I want folks to look at when we talk about because rightly so, all of this stuff and the history stuff is about black white stuff because that's where with the Bacon Rebellion, that's where really institutional and, and structural racism, uh, you know, came from. Uh, and, and 
but there's there's age, disability, religious yeah. culture, ethnicity, sexual orientation, social yeah. class, indigenous, national yeah. origin, and gender. You know, there's a bunch, and they all, you know, I once said to my wife, who, as you know, is a very strong black woman, and I said to her, and I said to her, uh, you know, I I used to think that black women were the most marginalized people in American society, but they're not. And she looked at me with that, and I said older black women are the most marginalized, mm -hmm. right? Because I've mm -hmm. learned so much about ageism. There, you know, there, there's, everything's connected and there's all this intersectionality. You know, you can be, uh, you know, uh, uh, I might be, with, we, we, I use the terms agents and targets the, from, from the, there's a great book, I, it's her name, uh, Leticia Nieto, agents and target. Agent is like, Around not being the depressor or dominant, you know, we're, we call, we're the ones that have unearned advantage and we're granted easier access, right? And, and uh, the target is the oppressed groups that are socially undervalued and denied equal access. So there's agents and targets and, and I'm an agent, I'm a white male, but I'm also a Jew and I'm over 65. You know, so there's ageism and there's mm -hmm. the, the religious thing as well. Mm -hmm. So we all have, we, we all step in different little, you know, ponds and so forth. And, and we have to be, you know, I mean, to be, we used to make jokes when we were a kid, there was a great entertainer named Sammy Davis Jr. who, who was a black man. He was really, really short. Yeah. He, was, he became Jewish. He, he made himself Jewish oh. and he lost an eye. And so he was disabled. I mean, the guy had everything going against him, but he persevered and he became like a role model to all of us, you know. Yeah. So I just don't want people to forget about that all these other groups that are being oppressed. Yeah, that's that's yeah. a really good point and, and super valid. And I think the Sammy Davis Jr. Um, you know, example is such an interesting polarity because then people will go, well, you know, Barack Obama did it and Oprah Winfrey did it and Sammy Davis Jr did it but there are a small few that rose above and then it's something that Titar and I again have discussions around are like just because a small few rose above and could make it um you know past oppression or whatever doesn't mean that that's the norm for right. everyone yeah. for for everyone and I think sometimes that becomes an excuse for people to yeah. not really looking at you know the the whole picture as well, but I also think it is a really good example of not playing victim or being victim to the system, right? And I think their examples, a small sampling of people that have been oppressed that rose above and didn't play victim to that as well. And I find that really hard to say as a white person, because who am I to say that you shouldn't play victim to a system that oppresses you, right? So it's like such an interesting conversation to get into around the small few that have become the example for everyone of what's not real. And then how do we lift each other up? And I think as white people, we get to explore that too. Like how, how do we support and really enable the black voices and educate people that, like you said, want to be educated and, and things like that. So I just think, that, yeah. yeah, go ahead, Tita. And, and I was going to say, well, but to that point about whether it's people playing victim to it or not, I think it has a lot to do with internalized racism though, right? Because sure. I know 
And, and these individuals that we are talking about, these outliers, mm-hmm. you know, um, who had great opportunities or afforded with some great opportunities and certain things, I'm sure they, I know they talk about their stories. I know Oprah talks about some of the things that she's went through mm-hmm. before she was able to break through and still some things that she goes through because she has broken through and she's a black woman and she still is not as respected in regard maybe from her skin tone versus from her Oprah show. You know what I mean? Like if you get women together, you know, you have like white women together, you have black women together. I don't think she would still be as respected as um, a woman due to the color of her skin, even though she's, you know, even though she's broken through and um, she, it's an outlier, but I think the thing is, you know, like, like I've mentioned before, I, 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 it's just internal oppression, that whole condition piece because of the, even just the generational passing on of, well, you're black, you, you know, you're not going to be able to have access to this. You should probably just go for this and you know, it's going to be hard for you if you try to do this and that because of the color of your skin. Right. And so I think, I don't know if it's really victim versus just really internalized oppression. And until a person of color is able to understand that, that what's around them has been forced upon them due to false realities of fear and so forth. And that you are, you, there's nothing about you genetically. There's nothing about you as a human (laughs) that you're lesser than it's going to be hard for um, people of color to move forward and not feel that they're oppressed or feel that they're lesser than the white race. So that, I don't know if I'm making sense. Uh, sense Yeah, that makes sense. It, it does. And, and, you know, everything I kind of look at life and I can almost find everything as being bittersweet. There's something good. But, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. persevered about a lot of stuff, but there's a lot of stuff about him that really bothered me, too. You know, he he bought into this pulling, you know, pulling yourselves up to your bootstrap by your mm-hmm. bootstraps where, you know, what about the folks that don't even have boots? You know, and but but, uh, you know, he, he was all about that, too. And about being you know and one of the things when they decided when they decided that they had to separate poor whites and blacks and get them against each other so that every man no matter how degraded they were so low and poor could now find pride in his race because you know they 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 could even be working for slave owners in those days and you know be beating the slaves and so forth and feel above them and so forth you know and that whole thing was built on you know they, they created a thing called the white American self. The correct way to become an American was to take on these values, you know, to be independent and ambitious and accumulate wealth and, you know, and to turn toward capitalism and away from communalism when we work together, which is which was super, super important because humans always used to work together and are very social beings. They depended on each other in, in old tribal terms and so forth. But, you know, so when you have people like, Sammy Davis Jr. and and Oprah, you know, Oprah, I when you think of Oprah, how can you not think of privilege too? 
she has her own jet and mm -hmm. you have to think of yeah. privilege too. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, mm. you know, you, you have to look at it from, from every end of that. And, and that's why we have to really concentrate on what, what we have in common and, and how everything that we're, again, it hurts all of us racism, you know, and, mm -hmm. and there's enough yeah. for all of us. There's enough in the pie for all of us because yeah. coming back to the scarcity thing, you know, these people who are afraid of uh, there's not enough and they're going to take things away from me, e even white or black. If you if you live in a scarcity mentality and live your mm -hmm. life that way, that keeps you from a, a achieving goals. It keeps sure. you it limits your ability to plan and to focus and to, mm -hmm. you know, to finish things. You're too busy about thinking, thinking about something you don't have. So it makes right. impulse control harder. And, you know, and, 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 you know, fear of the unknown can cause us to think with that scarcity mindset and so forth. So. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really it's funny when it comes down to it. It's a it's 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 really sad that uh, like to me in some ways that the way to reach white people is to show them how much it hurts hurts you as a white person as opposed to just saying it's the right thing to do, you know. Yeah. But we are but we're all humans and we all have uh, you know all of these stories in our head that we've had all of our lives of what we think we're gonna need and have and. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so true. Yeah, it's so true. I just posted in our newsletter today a movie that I watched called The Best of Enemies, where um, a, a black woman activist and the head of the KKK, and it's a true story, had to come together um, about segregation in, in the schools. And um, the thing that brought them together was he got to he he got to understand her pain through his own life experience right so it's just relevant to 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 what you're saying like that he he saw that in the end what if what could potentially affecting her was affecting him and his family too and it was that commonality that actually ended up bringing them together and it wasn't until she showed him um that there's the similarities in in their lives and what's hard and what's oppressive and what's unfair that he got it and he changed and so it makes so much sense when you say you have to show white people how it actually affects them um it's sad but it it, it just it just it totally makes sense so it's sad mm. but it works you know yeah. and it sounds like it, it sounds like he you know he kind of more developed is empathy, you know, mm. and, and we do a lot of work around that. I mentioned earlier the golden mm. rule and the platinum rule. I think mm -hmm. it applies to what the story you just told is that, you know, I was brought up with the golden rule and they, you know, give unto others how I would want them to treat mm. me mm. as opposed to the, the, the platinum rule, which is, which is given to others the way they want to be treated. Right, because we're talking about equity here, and we, you know, the we in our DEIB work, we do the uh, mm -hmm. the equity and um, and equality thing. What's the difference mm -hmm. between equity and equality? Yeah. And you've seen the photo a million times, probably, mm -hmm. of the ballpark with the fence. And yeah, the, yeah. You, know, you know, and you yeah. see the three different. You know, it's the same thing. It's that it's that equity thing. Looking at people, people don't want what you want for yourself, and and that again comes mm -hmm. back to. I'm a broken record with this, but I think that one of the yeah. biggest problems in the world and in our country right now is people are too subjective thinking. It's about me, 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 not we, mm -hmm. we, we. 
You know, right. I asked somebody, why won't you wear a mask or why won't you get the vaccine? Well, I want to, uh, you know, I don't think I'm going to get sick or they'll say, or I don't uh, believe in the virus or I want my freedom. And they said, well, all three reasons you gave me just begin with I, you know, <laughs> what about what about the rest of us? You know, mm. I'm vaccinated. I'm wearing a mask because I don't want you to get sick. You know, mm-hmm. and I, you know, so it's it's people are so inside of themselves because we've been taught again to it all connected. We've been taught to be individuals, you know, and not to, not to, not because that's what they had to do to be successful with slavery is, is take apart communities. What's the first thing they did in the safe slave markets. They broke apart families. Yeah. Right. And messed up their languages, put different (laughs) tribes of blacks together. So they couldn't really communicate with each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Sad stuff. Oh, wow, this is gosh. so good, good Joel. Like really great stuff. So wrapping it up, how can people work with you individually? Do you only work with corporations? Like how can they connect with you, work with you, go deeper? And I know we'll share the books that you that you read as well. That you, um, yeah. And, and I'd love to share one last thing of, of oh, what please you do. do. Right oh, now. yeah. But, uh, and then, uh, but you can work with me individually in coaching. You can work with me through with an organization, with all your leadership team and so forth, um, whatever you need. I'm, I, you know, you have when you're trying to do what, what we're all trying to do here, you just have to be very agile and flexible and do whatever mm-hmm. people need to try to meet them where they need to be met to to kind of bring them uh, into the hummingbird mode, as if you will. But I, I really think one thing people could start thinking about today and walk away with today is what to do, uh, you know, wh- whether you want to, when you see something that's going on, that's like microaggressions, you know, you've got options when people come to you and say things, you can shame them or you can mm. teach them, right? Mm. And I remember uh, I, I used to be, before the pandemic, used to go to this yoga studio all the time, five days a week. I'm a, you know, an endurance athlete and I'm in pretty good shape. And uh, um, and after and after in the locker room, the men's locker room afterwards, all these this was in Seattle. This is in the Amazon uh, campus. So everybody was in their twenties and thirties, and I'm you know sixty six, and and but and as good a shape as, as these guys. And, and they one guy came to me and said, well, "How old are you?" And you know my ageism's kicking in already. I said, "Why do you ask?" He said, "Well, you look really good for your age." And I said, you know, I could have shamed them there. And I said, you know, when you tell somebody, if you tell me I look really good right. for my age, you're trying to give me a compliment. <laughs> I get that. But it's really insulting because you're saying my age is age. inherently bad. Right, right, right. You know? right. So, I, so I said, you know, so, you know, so I had this little conversation with him that way. I said, so next time, you know, what's another way you could say you look good for your age, you know, instead of saying you look good for your age. And, and, and we have that conversation. So I had the opportunity when people did do things like that to you, when you receive a microaggression, think about it and say, well, what do you, what's the value you want to get out of it? Do you want to shame somebody and tell them they did something wrong? Or do you want to teach them? But, you know, again, I'm still a little bit of a masochist. So when I left the room, I said, I was born in 1954. I always make them do the math. <laughs> I love that. That's so. That's so true. Wow. We we had someone ask when you're going to come back on. <laughs> what what? What's that? So what did somebody say? The question is, when is Joel coming back on? Yes. Yeah. Maybe you should have so them on and I together. I could sit in her lap. 
That's a that's a great idea. You know, I was thinking that before Actually, we should get you both on together. I think that, that would be such be, a great conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's tee let's, that up. Uh, let's definitely. Thank you. Thank you, Joel. Uh, this was like so fruitful. Tea oh time. Thank so, you. Go, go ahead. So valuable. And I mean, even just because I don't even know the history. And I think sometimes that's what's interesting is I think sometimes white people think that white people know everything about the history about blacks and so forth. And no, we actually do not. Right. So, <laughs> um, because we, we either learning the same thing as they are um, or not, but wow. Just wow. Um, I guess I was trying to see how we can wrap up of something. You kind of did give a little example of the subjective thinking, something that our audience can like without, like if they don't go through your inclusive um, project, inclusive leadership project, you know, and want to just kind of be more mindful of um, that subjective thinking. What, what can you give our audience to try to embark on and embrace just to kind of start shifting um, the perspective, that subject, subjective, you know, perspective, uh, especially right. for our white audience, like that whole identity piece. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I know it's like a lot, but I'm just trying to, yeah, right. I'm just trying to figure out like, what can you give them that they can take away from to implement now in their life without going through the whole uh, Great program. question. Yeah, you, you know, the, the, as I mentioned before, the, one of the best things you can do is develop a habit to pause when you're, mm. when you're about to answer any question is to start to learn to pause between, you know, stimulus and response before something happens in your respond. Because if you don't pause, you might not respond. You might react emotionally. You're right. You know, you have, we, we, don't, we don't know how much our, our opinions affect things. I show a film in my, in, in my, uh, uh, in my workshops that shows that we make it, we decide whether we want to trust somebody in about one fifteen hundredth of a second. And it has to do with whether their eyes are shaped like infants and whether they look like infants who are the most trusted people on the planet. And, and, our, and our minds are just oh. working, doing, doing things. You know, you think about an implicit bias. Well, our, we've got this biological implicit bias and so forth. So pause, now think, think about it and think about that you know, I I'm, I try to read and learn and so forth. Lifelong learning for my health, healthy aging clients. I do healthy aging work. Lifelong learning is about the best thing you can do. The only thing I know for sure in this world is that I don't know enough. So start seeking to, like I said, seeking to understand people, even if you disagree with them, instead of getting your point across. Because you 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 all every time you have a conversation with a person, it's it's an opportunity to learn. And there's a lot more, you know, advantage for, for you as an individual to learn than to get somebody else to get your point across, which they just probably won't listen to anyway, because they're thinking about the next thing they want to say to you. Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, that's yeah. great. That's oh. such a good habit to, to build. I'm like, got it, got it. I'm going to practice that one for sure. <laughs> so Joel, for those that are watching and those that are listening, how can they connect with you? 
Well, they can go to joelcamp.com um, and or if they're interested in healthy aging, keepyourbuttmoving.com. But that's on both sites. It's uh, it's on the joelcamp.com site. It talks about the project, talks about the work I do with leaders. But there's an email there, too. If you're just inter in interested as an individual to do some individual coaching, go ahead. If you just want to have a question to talk about how you get more involved and just have a, you know, a short conversation, too, we can do that as well. So just you can just reach me through the website. That's awesome. And it's J-O-E-L Camp K-A-M-P-F for those that are F as in Frank, right? And it'll be on your site, right? On the Yeah, yeah, it will. It will. Yeah, it'll be everywhere. Yeah. Put it everywhere. And Tita, how can they find us? Share, follow, like, spread the message. Yes. They can find us through Google. If you put Tita and Tiffany, or if you put conversation with Tita and Tiffany, a black girl, white girl. Google is giving us some good credit. It, all our stuff is popping up and you'll get to our website. You'll get to our IG. You'll get to our Facebook page, all of that. And then some personal stuff too. But Tiffany and I are great people. So we have nothing to hide. We're all about all <laughs> real and less. Open books. In the, Open in the books. Yes. yes. So yes. Blackgirlwhitegirlconversations.com or just Google Tita because she has an awesome name all right Joel we're going to have you back thank you so much again we so appreciate your wisdom and your education and the history lesson yeah. and the work that you're doing and thank you so much for the opportunity I'm really grateful to have been here thank you